Welcome to this podcast by the Royal College of Anesthetists on addressing the retention challenge in anesthesia. My name is Dr. Krish Ramachandran. I'm a consultant anesthetist at University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire. I'm also a member of the RCO Council and chair of the Workforce Strategy Committee of the college, overseeing our campaign, Anesthesia Fit for the Future. I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Muldoon, also a college council member, representing anesthetists in training and a newly qualified consultant anesthetist specializing in neuroanesthesia at the King's College Hospital in South London. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Krish. Uh, this podcast is a conversation between me and Sarah about the challenge, challenges of retention in anesthesia. The RCOA recently launched its report, Respected, Valued, Retained, working together to improve retention in anesthesia. The report makes several recommendations for employees, employers, and system leaders on how anesthetists can be supported to stay in work as long and as healthy as possible at its most challenging time. I would encourage you to read it if you have not so already. Sarah and I are at very different stages in our careers. And during this conversation, we are keen to explore our experiences and expectations for a long and fulfilling career in anesthesia. I'll be asking Sarah questions and in turn, Sarah will ask me questions. So Sarah, you are at the start of your career as a consultant. How would you envisage your career changing over the next two to three decades? Thanks, Krish. Well, I was appointed a substantive consultant a year ago now, having just completed my training during the COVID summer of 2020. And I have to say, I've spent this first year with a very short-termist view, just trying to get comfortable in my new role, um, trying to feel like I can carry the respect, not just of my anaesthetic colleagues, but also of the surgical and theatre nursing staff and adapting to the role of being the trainer instead of the trainee. And so I guess now that a year has passed, I'm starting to look ahead and ask myself, what will I want or need in the next five years, in the next 10 years, um, to keep getting better at what I'm doing and to keep finding the job interesting? Well, yeah, the first year must have been quite challenging and um, you're probably glad that the first year's over. Uh, how did that go? I think I was pleasantly surprised by how comfortable I felt clinically in the first year. Actually, yeah. I did feel that my training and experience had equipped me well to do the job in front of me. Um, so while obviously I did have challenging cases, I work in a department with supportive, friendly, really experienced colleagues who were always very open at giving advice and guidance on how to manage tricky things. Um, but actually, I found it really positive and reassuring that I felt able to do the job. Obviously, what everyone warns you about is it's some of the more political aspects that are more challenging. Um, I'm somebody who likes to be friendly and amenable at work. So to find yourself in situations where you perhaps disagree with colleagues, whether they're in your speciality or in a surgical speciality or an allied health profession, I have found those some of the more difficult things to navigate. Um, but again, it's always good to be able to fall back on the experience and guidance of other people around you. Thank you. And 
what do you think the challenges are for the next few years um, going forward, the next five years? What are your you know, aims and goals for the next five years? And I think being, being in a clinical member of the NHS at any time has always felt like lurching from one crisis to the next. And this has certainly been um, the crisis of all crisis the past 18 months. And I think the challenge for the NHS is to stop dealing with everything in a short-termist, let's deal with this crisis and then think about what comes next. Um, staff in all specialities across healthcare have been working to the bone and we still need to keep working hard to deal with the juggling act of spikes in COVID care alongside the ever-building list of patients waiting for routine healthcare, particularly for us as part of the theatre team, those waiting for elective operations. I really think we need to build in how we make the years ahead sustainable and enjoyable for anaesthetists and for the rest of the healthcare team, rather than focusing all our energies into how do we deal with the drama in front of us now, we need to think about how do we help people survive this drama and thrive in the following years in healthcare. Okay. All right. Now, you mentioned um, that you've had a lot of support in the department to carry on what you do, both in, in terms of support for your clinical duties as well as the Royal College duties. Now, that is the third element, which is the family. Now, how do you juggle your work-life balance? Because the pressures of work often extend into family and that can put additional pressure on the family. How do you cope with that? How do you balance that? Uh, honestly, I'm sure at times I have balanced that very poorly. I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by forgiving friends and family. And I actually think that the past 18 months has made them really proud and appreciative of what not just myself, but what they can see the entire NHS community has done for the country in the past 18 months. And I'm sure there's a lot of family and friends of healthcare workers out there who feel the same. So the fact that we've had so much public attention on the work that we've needed to do, particularly anaesthetists and intensivists and the colleagues that support us in our roles at work, um, I've really had a spotlight shone upon us and I kind of finally feel like friends and family now have an idea of what we've been doing and they can see that the sacrifice they've spent in terms of the quality time they've spent with me over the years has um, has achieved something worthwhile for other people. Thank you. Um, you know, well-being is a hot issue these days and well-being is a serious problem amongst doctors. Now, if you were to give advice to your trainees coming through the, the ranks as we were, what would you advise them um, to maintain their well-being? What, what um, challenges can they expect and how do they cope with that? What, um, can you share your experience with that, please? Thanks, Krish. That is a good question. And I don't know that it was something I was ever good at as an anaesthetist in training. I think to protect your well-being, not only do you have to respect your own time and your own needs, you need to see that the people around you respect that too. Um, we can all see the pressure that anaesthetists in training are under. Um, they were asked to deliver much of the acute care during the worst peaks of the COVID-19 pandemic. For some in certain areas of the country, that ask is happening all over again. 
but actually that's not unusual. We always look to our anaesthetists in training to step up and cover crises, whether it's at a small local level or nationally, as we've seen over the past 18 months. So anaesthetists in training need to feel that it's okay to say no when asked to do certain things that they feel uncomfortable with or when they feel that their bucket of physiological and personal needs is already spent. And they need to be able to see that their departments are receptive to that. I guess the other side of that argument is for we can't push everything onto the certain members of the department that always say yes. Um, so we have to be flexible about what we ask of other people and flexible about what we expect of ourselves. But it's very difficult to respect your own time and space if it feels like people around you aren't respecting that. And I also think there is some power in reflecting that up as well. Um, consultants, SES grade anaesthetists or nursing staff our surgical colleagues have all had to work even harder than we usually do over the past 18 months and sometimes just showing that little bit of kindness to somebody in a different role to you or in a more senior role to you and um, gives them the little push that they need um, to to put a little kindness back into the world so I think to to really look after your own well-being you also have to be mindful of the well-being of everyone around you and we all need to be a bit kind and a bit patient with each other. Thank you. Um, but Chris, I've got a year's worth of consultant experience to muse on well-being. You have managed to sustain this career for over 30 years. Um, so I would really value your reflections on how you think a department can um, promote good well-being for everyone. Thanks, Sarah. A very good question. Although I must admit it's quite challenging to compress a few decades in a couple of minutes. I will try though. Now, things were very different when I was training. Well-being was not in our vocabulary. And to be very honest, I don't think it was even mentioned in departmental or hospital conversations, especially with people you couldn't relate to. Now, this was the case, at least in my experience, until a few years ago. In fact, it would have been taken as a sign of weakness in an individual and could have potentially jeopardized your career progress. At least that's what I felt and many others too. So we, did, we hid our feelings, confiding only to those whom we trusted most, which is mostly family or a very close friend. I also know of colleagues who are superb clinicians but quit medicine when they became overwhelmed by stress and anxiety for one reason or another and felt they had no one to turn to for any help. But in a strange way though, this culture may have built the resilience within me to the point that even today, I still feel a little embarrassed talking about our personal struggles with others. Now, thanks to your generation, Sarah, and the one after, we are able to mention job security and personal well-being in the same sentence, and rightly so. It is heartening to note that we've finally woken up to the fact that work-related stress and mental health is critical to retention of staff and, by extension, productivity in healthcare. It has also been brought into sharper focus since the pandemic and we all know what a terrible toll it has taken on the NHS workforce. Now, I speak as a beneficiary of this paradigm shift in culture and attitudes to stress of the workplace. I was struck down with COVID in March last year and was off work for nearly three months. Believe me, it was, I was in quite bad shape. The recovery was slow, but my colleagues rallied together to support me, which I'm sure would have been unthinkable some years ago. 
I returned to work in a phased manner until I was able to resume normal duties. Now, this is a clear sign yet, to me at least, of change in values and priorities within the NHS. And it's a good thing. That said, though, well-being is not a one-way street. It's actually a two-way um, two street, if you like. We must give as much as we receive because I know I owe a lot to my colleagues. Well, Krish, when yeah. you look back over a long career in different departments, yeah. let's say we'll ignore the COVID-19 pandemic for now. Yeah. Were there ever any particular moments or periods in your career that you did find challenging or difficult personally or professionally? And what advice would you impart to someone as junior, a consultant as me, having learned from those experiences? Sarah, in my day, structured training program, like the one you went through, did not exist. We used to move around hospitals frequently, and as these were standalone jobs, one had to keep updating the CV regularly and attending several interviews. Quite stressful, I confess. This lack of job security meant that many of us lived out of a suitcase, really, which, was, which affected our home and social lives too. And it wasn't until I passed the second part of, part of the three-part FRCA that you could apply to a teaching hospital rotation as a registrar. This gave a degree of stability for a three-year period. Now, the situation is not different, much different today though. Trainees still move around hospitals, but as part of a well-structured and well-designed series of rotations without the need for frequent CV updates and dreaded interviews. On the flip side though, accepting that work and exam pressures are comparable, some old folk may disagree with me, we did not have the rigorous internal assessment processes and seemingly endless paperwork that modern trainees have to endure. We were also helped by the fact that a lot of us lived in hospital accommodation, which was quite handy. You didn't have to drive long distances home, which was inherently safer. Although we did wallow in a bit of shared self-pity. Now you asked me what advice would I give to those who are in the early stages of the consultant careers? Well, it may sound a little bit trite, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it anyway. Firstly, medical career is a long haul and there's no rush to get to the top in the shortest possible time. You get there barring anything unexpected. I speak from experience as I took the scenic route to the top. I accept this may be difficult as the training is so well structured and time limited in the current system. Secondly, it is important to recognize that you're not alone. Your peers are in the same boat as you, and so you're in good company. Third, seek advice and help as often as you feel necessary. I can tell you the best advisors are the ones within your own department. Senior colleagues like me are only too willing to act as mentors to guide you until you find your feet. Now resist taking on much more than you can handle, especially early on in your career. A lot of your colleagues will try and foist things on you to try and get rid of the load off, the, off their backs, if you like. Please do resist. That's important that people resist that. Now, set precise targets and achieve them in a timely manner. And that is crucial because no, no matter how small the target is, ensure that you complete it before you take on the next challenge. And where there is a gap in service or indeed anything uh, at all, set it up yourself and see where you, get on, go, where you go with it. Be a trailblazer and your peers will remember you. Having said this, I am here, I'm here I am in my twilight years and find myself caught up in the ravages of the pandemic. I find myself working hard as ever in the roles that I was hoping to hand down to younger colleagues. But all hopes of a quiet few years before retiring 
has all but evaporated. Well, can I ask then, Chris, how do you think that could be managed well? As a consultant who's been practicing for three decades now, how would you like the final years of your career to play out? What do you think would work well for other anaesthetists of your age and experience? We know retention of senior anaesthetists, including SAS doctors, is a major issue now and going forward too. The college, the BMA, other national bodies have all made their representations for the powers that be. And although there has been a little movement, there's still some way to go as folks would like to see tangible evidence on the ground. And that's not evident yet. Nearly 40% of anaesthetic workforce over the age of 50 and surveys have shown that repeatedly. And this is climbing every year, obviously. If even a small proportion of the seniors decide to quit early or even on time, we are left with an even bigger deficit in the workforce, which will only pile on more pressure on our younger colleagues. Now, with dexterity becoming a factor as you age, it is only fair in my view that those of us who have served the NHS faithfully over the long years expect that they are recognised and valued for their contributions. After all, seniors have always been the bedrock of this country's health service, and that is unlikely to change anytime soon which is reassuring for younger colleagues. But recognition and reward don't necessarily mean monetary compensation. It could be um, being allowed to work more flexibly, perhaps, doing fewer nights and covering weekend lists and, and, or emergency workload during the daytime. I feel older consultants have much to offer in non-clinical areas as well, including management roles. A lot of us are quite experienced and are really keen to contribute to the conversations and discussions around um, these top, uh, subjects, feel I. Retire and return contracts need overhauling too. I'm afraid this is currently so variable across the country, with the few trusts only offering zero-hour contracts, which is humiliating in my view. Now, we all keeping, uh, keep hearing about pension woes of senior colleagues. I won't go there except to say that we all know of a colleague or colleagues who've been penalised for falling foul of the rather complex and often unfathomable pensions regulations and mostly through no fault of their own. Well, can I ask Krish then, how do you think the reworking of an older consultant's job could be done to make them feel they're contributing to the department and lighten the load of other members of the anaesthetic team? How can that work to the advantage of everyone in the department? Much of what I said to you, your previous question, Sarah, applies here too. But you make an important point about keeping it fair for all. I agree, any reworking of a senior consultant or consultant's working pattern should not unfairly shift the workload onto younger colleagues. This is not an issue in large departments, however, though as, as few consultants coming off the on-call rota, for example, shouldn't tilt the balance of work unfavorably towards young consultants or younger consultants. However, this is not the case in smaller units or more specialist areas such as paediatrics or cardiac, where losing a member of staff could impact negatively on others. Here, the notion of one in and one out works well and has done so for a very long time. But there are other compromises too that seniors can make, for example, like sharing interesting or popular lists to make job plans of incoming consultants more varied and interesting too, or offered to cover short notice sickness of colleagues, etc. Is retire and return an attractive prospect to you? Is retire and return a prospect for me? 
I'm afraid not. My personal circumstances dictate that I continue working for at least five years. But I recognize there are others who may consider retiring if only the contracts were standardized. Unfortunately, that is not the case currently. Why do you think it is so variable? What needs to change culturally, either at department level or nationally, um, to stop this happening? I suspect this is due to a lack of clear guidance or policy on retire and return contracts that can be uniformly applied across the country. This effectively means it's up to the individual trust management to decide locally what they're willing to offer. Now, this is a sore point of many seniors as most decide, most must decide to hang on to their jobs or quit. The likes of BMA and other organizations have raised this irksome issue with the powers that be, but it is clear there are much bigger problems on their hands and that subject of contracts is not even on the radar. But this is sad as we are hemorrhaging experienced clinicians who have a lot to contribute, and particularly with workforce shortages, which is predicted to get worse. Thank you, Krish. I agree with much of what you said about that. I look up to a lot of the senior consultants in my department. How do you try to act as a role model? for the newer consultant members of your department, Krish? Particularly, not just clinically and professionally, but thinking about well-being. How do you try to show new members of the department what a good consultant anaesthetist looks like? Interesting question, Sarah. I think we all harbour a secret desire to leave a little mark in the places where we work, however small it may be. Now, <clears throat> I was had the privilege of being the college tutor and now the chairman of the department. So I have plenty of experience in relating to and mentoring colleagues at all levels. What I, what I say may sound a little bit cliche, but I will say it nevertheless. Now there are three A's on there, approachable, affable, and available. Not necessarily in that order. You need at least one of those attributes, preferably more. People generally warm up to you if you possess these qualities. Others that add immeasurably to your credentials as a role model are being punctual, responding promptly to concerns and queries of colleagues, and a reasonably good sense of humour, self-deprecating preferably. For those of us that get caught up in patient complaints or medical legal issues, or for those younger colleagues who may get caught up in patient complaints or medical legal issues, I share my experiences and how I cope with that situation. Now, you asked me about being a role model for well-being. Now, that is a lot more complicated. Coping or overcoming stress is quite person-specific, as it is very much as it very much depends on the work and home circumstances and the personalities too, which varies widely from one person to another. My fervent belief is if your home life is stable, your professional life will also be stable and sustainable and successful too. I can see my own life in two halves, the free, perhaps a little unhinged, unstable first half, and a second more stable and a settled half. I have a wonderful nephrologist wife who understands the pressures of a medic's life, and two lovely children keep me busy, and importantly, keep, me remind, keep reminding me of how misinformed I am of their generation. But please don't take it to mean that single folks should rush out and find a partner immediately. I'm happy to share the advice given to me by a senior consultant many, many years ago. He used to chat to me at length about coping mechanisms as he was going through some personal challenges himself. His advice to me was never ignore the me in you, meaning be a bit selfish. 
for if you allow a little time for yourself, it pays dividends down the line. And you went on to say there are a few things you may want to consider outside of work and family routine. Keep fit through playing sport or going to the gym. Keep your mind active by learning a language or taking up music. It may be singing or playing an instrument. I know of a couple of colleagues who are part of a choir. And learn a DIY skill, even if it is something simple. I took the message on board, but it wasn't until much later in my career that I recalled that conversation. I was able to put some of it into practice. Now, I'm not saying you should be doing it all. That's not realistic, given the, the time pressures we have. But you'll be amazed how effective it is in relieving stress. It has also rewarded me with friends and acquaintances outside of work. Thank you so much. I can only imagine how much um, your department value your advice and experience. And I think this has been a really great opportunity for the wider anaesthetic community to benefit from it too. Well, we have come to the end of this podcast. I want to end by thanking Sarah for taking part in this conversation. And I hope you find it useful. Thank you for listening to this Royal College of Anaesthetists podcast. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our programme of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.